This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to everyone joining us from all around the world. I am Paula Newton in New York. You are watching CNN and we begin with major breaking news from Russia and the release of Trevor Reed, the former U.S. Marine who's been imprisoned in Russia since 2019. The White House confirming the news in the last hour said he's been freed in a prisoner swap in exchange for a Russian citizen. Now, Trevor Reed's parents gave their reaction to my colleague, Brianna Keeler, just a short time ago. I want you to listen to this emotional exchange. Obviously, we're ecstatic. Uh, Joey's here, too. Hi, Joey. Tell us how you're feeling. Uh, hard to explain. <laughs> Answered prayers. Yeah. So many prayers, your prayers, the people that you have uh, reached out to and that have been so aware here of Trevor's plight. Can you tell us, Paula, how you found out that he was going to be released? Uh, Yeah, we found out. We got a call from the State Department. And and when was that? Can you tell me about that? Uh, I don't think we're allowed to tell you about that, but then we also got a call from the president. Amazing. uh, As soon as Trevor... As soon as Trevor was released, we were actually on the phone with Trevor when uh, the president called. <laughs> so, um, and uh, he again, gr- totally gracious and and wonderful and kind, and said he looked forward he looked forward to seeing us in the White House again. So, and tell us how Trevor's feeling. Tell us what what he said about this. Um, he's he sounds kind of subdued. I think he's a little overwhelmed. Um, they, yeah, he they, seemed to be in shock a little bit. They they had moved him to another prison. They had moved him to a Moscow prison this week. We we didn't know that. Uh, he's in the, went to the same prison that I think Paul Whelan was held in for a long time, Lafortovo uh, La, La uh, prison. And then they flew him from there to Turkey. And then um, Trevor quickly told us that they the American plane pulled up next to the Russian plane, and they walked both prisoners across at the same time, like you see in the movies. In Turkey. In Turkey, and there, and then uh, they were leaving Turkey uh, and in the air when when he called he called us and told us this. So they're they're en route back to we believe to the United States, but they can't tell us for sure. So, so do you, do you expect Joey to see him soon? Uh, we're not sure. They haven't told us that. We're actually expecting the State Department at our house any minute. They're going to come and give us more logistics and how things are going to happen. But mostly, we're just glad that obviously he's on his way home. But they also have a doctor on the plane. So he's getting checked out, and that was our main concern. Well, Paula, and that's what we've been talking about for so long, right? He has had symptoms of tuberculosis. He was exposed to tuberculosis. He had been complaining about what he thought was cartilage or a bone or something sticking out of his abdomen. What can you tell us about how he's physically feeling? Um, You know, Trevor always underplays how he's feeling, but he, he just said, I'm fine, I'm fine. But, you know, we'll see. At least he's getting checked out. Yeah, we're we're praying that he doesn't have tuberculosis, but we're still concerned, uh, you know, that he was coughing up blood for months. So um, it could be leftovers from his COVID uh, back in, you know, late or middle of last year. So. So this is all pretty recent news, right? I mean, are you guys still in shock? Uh, yes, a little bit. <laughs> we're we're uh, we believe that that meeting with the president is a. Uh, what, what made it happen. And uh, it was a tipping point for sure, which is what we had said all along. If we could just speak to the president, we just he's that kind of person. And and uh, and we, as always, we also we want to remember Paul Whelan um, and we need to get him out of there. 
And uh, he's, he's innocent, along with, you know, dozens of Americans all over the world uh, that we need to get out of those places, too. And uh, we, we just want the president to to keep going what he started here and, and with the, the uh, couple of prisoners in Venezuela. We, we need to get all of our Americans home. Look, Paula and Joey, it's amazing that you're trying to turn the focus now on other people who are so in need. Uh, I do want to ask you, Paula, when you see him in person finally, you know, what are you going to do? What do you want to say? Well, I'm going to try not to cry because he doesn't want me to cry. <laughs> but obviously, I'm going to cry a little bit and give him big hugs and um, just, you know, just give him hugs. And um, it'll be it's the four of us together again in, in a few years. So it's going to be great. I can't imagine what it has been like for you not to be able to touch him, to give him a hug. Uh, Joey, the yeah. same for you as well. I wonder, you know, what do you want? What do you want to say to him? Well, I want to hug him and not let him go. Um, and, you know, I, I was in Russia for 14 months, and I probably went to at least 20 different trial hearings where he's standing in a cage, and they, they won't let me touch him, shake his hand or, or anything. So, uh, obviously, uh, it'll, be, it'll be good to, to finally give my son a hug. I can't blame you for not wanting to let him go. Um, and he's going to put up with that kiss. And I think he's going to put up with you crying, Paula, as well. Um, Paula, what do you want to yeah, say yeah. to the—I know you spoke to the president. Um, what did you tell yeah. him? What do you, what, what do you want to say now that you've maybe had a moment well, to collect your thoughts? Well, we tell the president, obviously, that we were very grateful for his uh, quick action. And we, we, we were so thankful. And he said, I understand that you must be feeling excited or whatever. And then— um, he said, I wanted to call you, but I didn't want to, you know, jinx it during the middle of the night. So I waited until now. And he said, I'm happy for you. Congratulations. And then we said, Joey told him that when we see him again, well, he said he wanted to have us at the White House. And then Joey said, well, when we see you again, we're probably going to want to give you a big hug. Okay, so an emotional hour there in the last hour for the parents of Trevor Reed. Nada Bashir joins me now with the latest. I know you've been following this as it's been breaking you know, it, it was an emotional call, and clearly his parents um, quite happy. They're juggling ca calls between their son and the president. Uh, yet this really involved a lot of backroom diplomacy on the part of the United States and Russia. What more do we know about the fact that this wasn't a prisoner swap, that there was, in fact, a Russian citizen held in the United States that was exchanged? What more do we know? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. And this is interesting timing, of course, taking place with the backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Clearly, uh, the diplomatic talks between Russia and the United States in, over the course of this invasion have been uh, frailed and fragmented, uh, to say the least. But clearly, those diplomatic channels are still open. And we heard just in the last hour or so from Russia's foreign ministry spokesperson describing these talks, these negotiations as a lengthy process. And that is uh, certainly what it's been. Of course, uh, Trevor Reed's arrest taking place back in 2019 and in 2020 uh, sentenced to nine uh, years. Of course, uh, the U.S. has long maintained that he was innocent, that this is a miscarriage of justice. But we were expecting a lengthy prison sentence there for Trevor Reed. So clearly uh, some pretty intense negotiations have been taking place uh, between the diplomatic representatives of the U.S. and Russia uh, in the background. We've heard from President Biden. He said that this wasn't uh, an easy uh, decision to make, that prisoner swap that we heard from his parents taking place uh, in Turkey. Then let me just read you a bit from Biden's statement. He said, the negotiations that allowed us to bring Trevor home required difficult decisions that I do not take lightly. His safe return is a testament to the priority my administration places on bringing home Americans held hostage and wrongfully detained abroad. 
we won't stop until Paul Whelan and others join Trevor in the loving arms of family and friends. So clear this has long been a priority for the Biden administration. There do remain others in detention uh, in Russia and that continues to be a concern for the U.S. government. But you heard there from Trevor's parents, clearly a, a what they've described as quite a dramatic prisoner swap, describing it as something like in the movies uh, in Turkey. This has been part of intense negotiations, but clearly uh, the U.S. government will uh, be expected to share more details in the coming uh, hours and days with regards to what diplomatic talks took place and uh, what really is at stake for the others still in detention in Russia. Paula? Yeah, and of course, Trevor Reed's parents, they're mentioning Paul Whelan, who has been held for several years as well, his family awaiting news. But also, of course, the case of Brittany Griner, who is the professional uh, basketball player, American, uh, who's been held uh, for more than two months now uh, in Russia. This certainly gives them hope. As you rightly point out, Nada, this means that there is communication between uh, the United States and Russia in terms of having the prisoner swap. What's interesting here is... The person, of course, that Russia asked for, uh, it's interesting. Sometimes when this happens, they will ask that more than one prisoner be swapped. Uh, in terms of what we know, what did we hear from Russia about how they decided to do this prisoner exchange? Well, look, we are still getting the details uh, around this prisoner exchange. We heard uh, from Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova in the last hour or so. So she uh, identified this Russian citizen as Konstantin uh, Yaroshenko. He'd been sentenced to 20 years uh, in prison by an American court in 2010, so uh, far earlier than, of course, Trevor Reed. But you mentioned there the others still in detention. Uh, there are concerns around their health. And clearly, while we are still getting the details around this Russian uh, individual who has taken part in this prisoner swap, there will certainly be some focus on uh, Paul Whelan and Brittany Groner, who have been in detention and continue to be in detention uh, in Russia, particularly, as you mentioned, there, around health concerns. That was certainly a concern uh, around Trevor Reed's case. We heard from his family. They were even uh, taking part in protests outside the White House on hunger strikes, uh, concerned over their son's health. That has been a concern uh, for Paul Whelan as well and, of course, Brittany Griner. So there will certainly be uh, increased focus on that and on the decisions that the U.S. government will be taking going forward with regards to those diplomatic efforts. Paula? Yeah, you make such a good point. Again, you know, Trevor Reed telling uh, his parents he was okay, but his father then pointing out that, look, he, he's been coughing up blood for some time. They did indicate there was uh, a doctor with him uh, on in flight right now, and we expect to hear more in the coming hours about when that family reunion may take place. Nada Bashir, I really appreciate you getting on top of this story uh, in the last few minutes. And now we, of course, go to the latest news from the war on Ukraine. And we begin inside Russia, where explosions were reported overnight at three places not far from the border. In Belgorod, an ammunition depot was left ablaze. Explosions also heard in Kursk and Voronezh. Now, Ukraine is saying it's not saying, in fact, that it's behind the attacks, but an advisor to President Zelensky tellingly said, and I'm quoting here, debts have to be paid back and karma is a cruel thing. Meantime, Ukraine is admitting it's taking losses in the east as Russia intensifies its attacks there. And this is also significant. That's significant. There are more missile strikes in the south. Listen to this.
you know, spared for several weeks. Uh, now there is intensifying uh, activity there in the south. Two missiles you see there hit the strategic bridge near Odessa. This is video, as you see there, from that first strike. New images, meantime, show the extent of the damage. The bridge is the only link between the southwest corner of Ukraine and the rest of the country. Now, the economic impact of the war is also being felt in the EU and NATO countries. Russia has cut off natural gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria after they refused to pay Moscow in rubles. Poland calls it a direct attack on the country, while the EU makes clear this is Russia attempting blackmail. Scott McLean is live for us in Lviv with the latest on what's going on in the ground. And Scott, Ukraine is, as we said, hinting that it may be responsible for these strikes. Uh, again, significant because these are military targets inside Russia. What more can you tell us? Yeah, Paula. So the first uh, explosion was heard just in the early hours this morning, local time. This was an ammunition depot, we understand, about 10, 15 kilometers inside the Ukrainian border. Uh, but what's more surprising is that around 2.30 in the morning, there was another explosion in the, Kirks, the Kursk region. Um, and this one, uh, the officials there say that the missile defense system appeared to work in that case. This was just two days after the Russians say that they shot down Ukrainian drones in that area. And then the third one was about two hours after that in the Voronezh area in that city, which is 200 miles or so inside of the Russian uh, border. Or, yeah, inside of the Russian border with Ukraine. It is a long ways away. We don't know what was hit in that case, but we do know that that city is a military and a transport hub. As you mentioned, the Ukrainians haven't said directly in plain language that they're responsible for these strikes, but they might as well have. Uh, an advisor to President Zelensky said in these Russian regions, large fuel depots that provide fuel for the Russian army's armored vehicles periodically burn and ammunition depots explode for various regions or for various reasons, excuse me. Also saying that those regions are now beginning to actively study such a concept as demilitarization a play on obviously how Russia has justified this war in the first place to try to denazify the country and demilitarize the country of Ukraine as well, Paula. Yeah, Scott, and you are pointing out the Ukrainian capabilities in this case, and you rightly point out that even its air defense systems still continue to work in some cases. You know, at the same time, Russia's aggression continues in the south. We saw Odessa hit again. Is this an indication that Russian forces are intensifying their attacks crucially, not just in the east, but also in the south? I think that there's a lot of questions about that latest attack, the latest two strikes on that bridge in the Odessa region because of its proximity to Moldova and also because it is the only road or rail connection between the far southwest of Ukraine and the rest of the country. And so now that region is essentially cut off from the rest of it. The only way to reach the rest of Ukraine is going by road, but you have to go through Moldova. Um, What's happening in Moldova is cause for concern in the separatist part of the country called Transnistria, where Russian troops have been stationed since the 1990s. There was a series of explosions there on Monday and on Tuesday. And the Ukrainians are concerned that because of those attacks, that this may be a sign that that region is destabilizing and that the Russians may be looking to open a new front in this war. President Zelensky, though, has previously said, though, that Ukrainian troops are ready to fight 
on a new front should it happen. Paula? Okay, and we'll leave it there for now. Scott, as always, thanks so much for bringing us right up to date on developments there on the ground. Meantime, we get to the economic piece of this. The Polish prime minister is accusing Moscow of a direct attack after it cut off natural gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. Now, both refused to meet a Russian demand to pay for supplies in rubles. Claire Sebastian uh, is on this story for us, and, and it can be a bit confusing, which is why I'm happy you're on this story, Claire. Good to see you. How much will this hurt economically, or is this more about the messaging? More about the messaging today, Paula. Yes, this is a blow to to Poland and Bulgaria, but they are able to manage this because if you look at how much they actually rely uh, on Russia, not not just for gas, but for all of their energy supplies, they do get a lot of their gas from Russia, but as a share of their total energy consumption, it's in the sort of low teens. So both of them say that they are able to to, to handle this. Poland says that it has a a gas pipeline under under construction from Norway uh, and LNG options as well, liquefied natural gas. So they are able to handle this. van der Leyen, the European Commission president, saying today that both are already getting uh, gas from their European neighbours. She said that should be interpreted uh, as a sign of solidarity uh, in Europe. And this is, but this is about Russia sending a message. They are deploying their most effective economic weapon uh, here, Paula, something they have been threatening for a long time. Now they are doing it. If they go further uh, and do the same thing to other European countries who refuse to pay for gas uh, in rubles, and many of them have said that they will not be paying for gas in rubles, in part because it might violate uh, sanctions on Russia, then we could see serious economic impact. Germany, for example, could be tipped into a recession. So this is something that Europe now really has to get ready for. Uh, absolutely. And not a lot of solutions out there. And in fact, the EU is still debating further sanctions on oil and gas imports. What do you think this will do? Will this tip them further uh, into perhaps acting more quickly on that? Yeah, it's possible that it will, Paula. Certainly, they, they want to now present a united front, Asila van der Leyen, saying it in comments that I think were directed not only at Europe, but also at Russia. Our response will be immediate, united and coordinated. That is on today's events, of course. But looking forward, they do want to present a, a united front so that Russia doesn't try to leverage any divisions in Europe. But this is very complicated, don't forget. There isn't actually consensus in Europe at the moment uh, on an oil embargo, certainly not uh, on, a, on a gas embargo. More and more countries are moving towards it. But there, there's the likes of Hungary, for example, that says it just won't be possible. Austria as well. Uh, and we know that, they, that there isn't going to be a decision particularly soon on this. Josep Borrell, the top diplomat in Europe, said that he doesn't expect anything before the next EU summit, which will be at the end of May. But certainly, I think this does put pressure on Europe to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's Russia raising the stakes once more. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much for going through that with us. Uh, And we've been through a lot already here this morning. Straight ahead, we will have more for you on the first time in its 20-year history. The International Criminal Court has joined an EU investigation into possible war crimes during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The challenges it faces to bring perpetrators to justice. That's next. New drone video obtained exclusively by CNN shows Russian forces near the scene of atrocities in Bucha. Now, highlighted there in the middle of your screen, you see it, is a Russian military vehicle at an intersection in Bucha. Up the street are the bodies of several dead civilians. 
Another video shows Russian soldiers around a military vehicle parked outside a nearby home. CNN has, in fact, geolocated and confirmed the authenticity of these videos. Despite evidence like this, Russia repeatedly denies any involvement. Meantime, the International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor tells CNN there will be, in fact, he says, a case to answer in due course on Russia's alleged war crimes in Bucha. Listen. Those uh, bodies that are in bags on the screen are not fake. Uh, I've seen them. I stood beside them. The issue is how did they die and who's responsible and in what circumstances. And this is why I think uh, independent investigations are needed because um, the families of those that have perished deserve answers. And I think the rest of the world is looking for um, how vigorous and effective uh, the rule of law can be in these circumstances. Dmitry Koval is a Ukraine genocide investigator with Truth Hounds, and he joins me now. Um, a, a lot to get here to, to get to here, and I want to discuss, of course, your reaction to what the prosecutor said there. But, you know, in, in terms of the work that you have ahead of you and what it means to investigate this, let's look at the list, right? It's extraordinary. We're talking about allegations of murder torture, sexual violence, use of human shields, forcibly transferring citizens, vandalism, theft, pillaging. And we add to that, of course, damage to the environment. How difficult has it been when you're presented with all of of really the great need there is to get out there and get the evidence in hand? Thank you, Paula, for this question. It's indeed very difficult. Uh, The team is uh, working 24-7 to collect all this evidence because they are now happening. We we are seeing them all over Ukraine, not only in the east as it was in the first wave of this war, but also in Kyiv region, in Sume, on the south. So in all the regions uh, that are now uh, an active uh, battlefield in this new wave war with Russia. Uh, But uh, we are doing our part, our government is doing its own part, and also we have this help from the international partners, from the ICC, uh, whose team is uh, now in Ukraine and investigating uh, war crimes. Also, we have the support from our European partners and also from the US and Canada. Um, Experts from these countries are also in Ukraine and they are in touch with Ukrainian officials and Ukrainian NGOs, and they are helping a lot in uh, collecting all this evidence. Yeah, you know, crucially, that includes forensic investigators. We just heard uh, from the ICC there, but central to these investigations is tracing the perpetrators, right? The intent is important. The chain of command is important. So just to give everyone an idea of what we're talking about, okay, we see that there's a shelling on civilians, but how do you determine if it's intentional? And if instead we're talking about those horrific atrocities that witnesses have been telling us about, some now documented by CNN, how do you trace the chain of command there? Uh, First of all, not every uh, war crime should be intentional or must be intentional to be a crime. Uh, There is this type of crime as unproportional shelling. So that's the shelling that targets military objectives, but at the same cause the collateral damage to civilian infrastructure and civilian objects. This is also a crime, a war crime actually, and it is done not intentionally, but uh, it causes this collateral damage. So in this type of crime, we do not have to prove even the intent. In other crimes, of course, uh, we should do this. We should prove the intent and it's uh, challenging. Uh, But at the same time, there is this uh, type of uh, responsibility in international 
criminal law called uh, command responsibility. That's the, the type of responsibility uh, that uh, actually does not um, uh, necessarily demand a proof of intent. What we should prove to uh, call the person responsible according to this principle of common responsibility it to, it to show that this person, the military union that was committing uh, crimes and this person hasn't reacted in any way on these uh, violations of international humanitarian law on these crimes. So we can definitely do that in many cases. Now, you can do the investigation and you can gather the evidence, even lay charges, but the odds of getting accountability are long. You know that. Certainly much has been done already ahead of you. And a long line of investigators historically have come before you. And we've seen and we've heard their frustration. Uh, How confident are you that those responsible will be brought to justice? I'm quite confident. Of course, I'm realistic at the same time. I do understand that not everybody who committed crimes will be brought to justice. But uh, I'm pretty sure that most of them will, either uh, in Ukraine, uh, in our ordinary national proceedings, or um, in in, uh, The Hague uh, by the International Criminal Court, or in some other countries. Um, In uh, couple of years, these persons would uh, forget that they committed those crimes and they will uh, travel to some destination that they uh, think are safe for them. So it will be possible for Ukraine and for partners to get them from, from those jurisdictions. So I'm quite positive on the, uh, on the uh, bringing those people to justice. Okay, interesting to hear that. I know you have a lot of uh, work ahead of you. And again, we talk about it as if, you know, in forensic terms. And and yet I know all of this involves so much tragedy and heartache for everyone in Ukraine. Um, Dmitry Koval, thank you so much for speaking to us. Appreciate it. Now coming up, much more on the latest developments in the war in Ukraine. Stay with us for more breaking news in a moment here on CNN. An update on our top story. American Trevor Reed is on his way back to the United States after being detained by Russia in 2019. Now, he was part of a prisoner swap with Moscow moments ago. My colleague Jim Shudo spoke to the State Department spokesman Ned Price about how the swap happened. Listen. Our special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, Roger Carstens, was uh, able to meet Trevor uh, today. The two of them, along with a team, are en route back to the United States uh, today. Trevor was in good spirits. He's looking forward, as you might imagine, uh, to being reunited uh, with his family. And that's something that will happen uh, within the coming hours. Uh, This is a good day for the United States. It also speaks to President Biden's commitment and this entire administration's commitment uh, to do everything we can to secure the release of Americans who are held hostage or otherwise wrongfully detained around the world. Uh, our special presidential envoy for hostages. And that there was Ned Price. We will continue to bring you that breaking news as Trevor Reed now is on his way back to the United States. And we return to the fighting in the east of Ukraine. It continues to intensify. A military spokesperson says Russia is reinforcing and resupplying its forces from bases inside Russia. Strategically, that's very important. Some of the heaviest battles are in and around the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. Clarissa Ward returned to that city and got a first-hand look. There's no rest at night for the people of Kharkiv. Flares light up the sky 
as artillery thunders through the air. For nearly nine weeks, Ukraine's second largest city has been shelled relentlessly. Only by day can you see the full scale of the destruction. The neighborhood of Pavlovo-Polye was hit repeatedly last month as Russian forces tried to push into the city. No site was spared, not even the local nursery school. So it looks like this was some kind of a dormitory. You can see children's beds here all around. And then in the next storeroom over there was their classroom. Their shoes still litter the locker room. Mercifully, the school had been evacuated, so no children were killed in the strikes. The mayor of Kharkiv says that 67 schools and 54 kindergartens have been hit here since the war began. And what's so striking when you look around is that it's so clearly not a military target. This is a residential neighborhood. Just a few blocks away, the bare skeleton of an apartment building. Authorities say more than 2,000 houses have been hit here. The sounds of war are never far away. So you can see this is what's left of the bedroom here. It's just astonishing. Two doors down, we see a figure peeking out. 73-year-old Larisa Kremina is still living there alone. So she's saying that she does have a sister who she could stay with, but she also lives in an area that's being heavily hit and she's living in a shelter at the moment. It's from all sides, she says. From there and there they can shell. With her fresh lipstick, Larissa is a picture of pride and resilience. Much like this city, still standing tall in the face of a ruthless enemy. Clarissa Ward, CNN, Kharkiv. So that's the military campaign. Meantime, concerns continue to grow over potential cyber attacks by Russia. Western governments have recently warned about the possible threat against critical infrastructure as Moscow's response to sanctions. Just last week, NATO held its annual cyber war games that included simulated attacks on power grids and financial systems. Joining us, us now is Amit Durrani, a CEO of cybersecurity firm Tenable. And it is really good to have you weigh in on this uh, today. You know, it, it, in your estimation, is a Russian-backed cyber attack likely underway at this moment? And if it is, have we yet to realize its impact or are private companies and governments mounting what is a really good uh, defense right now and not disclosing what's going on? Well, Paul, those are a series of great questions. Uh, there certainly is cyber activity going on. We've seen Russian attacks against uh, Internet services in Ukraine. We've seen them against satellite infrastructure, against wind and uh, turbines and, and power generation uh, across Europe. And I think governments are doing a good job helping organizations protect themselves. We've got a great effort going on from the Department of Homeland Security in conjunction with GCHQ uh, in the UK, providing very specific advisories about what vulnerabilities the Russians and, and other bad actors are going after. 
Ita, I have to ask you, though, you know, some would consider your opinions, in fact, provocative about what the government can and can't do to defend private entities, even critical infrastructure, um, things like banks and utilities that we were men- mentioning. I mean, you're quoted as saying we are at a major inflection point in history and how we respond will make all the difference. Uh, what do you mean by that? Do you want governments to take a lighter touch? Well, I don't think government should take a lighter touch, but I think government and governments have a very specific role in free society. They have to drive transparency. They have to drive accountability. They have to drive information about threats, things that the private sector is not really good at without the government's help. But if the government can do that and the private sector can be informed about the threat environment, uh, if they are forced to be transparent about breaches and what's working and what's not, then we can achieve a much stronger degree of security than we've seen historically. And that's really what's required. Okay, and given that, I want to get your opinion. A few weeks ago, as the New York Times, I believe, first reported, the U.S. secretly removed malware from computer networks around the world. I mean, think about that. They did that through the Justice Department. The disclosure was highly significant. In your opinion, was that an extraordinary move and was it necessary? Well, there has to be a very clearly defined role for the various governmental functions that are understood by the private sector Uh, in the course of the in the the case of the intelligence community, uh, collecting signals about what the bad guys are doing from a cyber command perspective, imposing our cyber will in, in areas and cases where that makes sense for law enforcement. It's really about the prosecution uh, and prevention of crime. So uh, we'll have to get a lot more specific about whether they were reaching into corporate networks or they were just disabling the command and control servers of these Russian or or other botnets, which are inflicting damage uh, on U.S. and, and other companies. So we have to be very careful about the role of government, make sure that we're encouraging and forcing the private sector to protect themselves. Close your windows, lock your doors, make sure you're operating from a strong uh, foundation, from a responsible foundation in cybersecurity. It sounds easy when you say it, and we all know it's just so complicated. I should say cyber, these kinds of cyber defense systems, they're they're booming right now, including your company, Earnings Profit Stellar. And yet, you know, I think what's going on with you guys is keeping me up at night. I know everyone is constrained right now uh, by labor shortages. I mean, how concerned are you that not just your company, but the larger industry will be able to keep up with the cyber threat, that we will remain safe and won't have a catastrophic problem? Yet this is absolutely no uh, time to panic. What we know definitively is that companies and individuals that care about their cybersecurity, that have a culture of enforcing good cyber hygiene and good cyber practices are absolutely better off. That's not to say you can't get breached, but it's it's to say that it's much more difficult to breach and much, much less likely. We've got to get rid of this learned sense of helplessness and understand that if we If we look for and patch and maintain our systems in a good state of repair, if we don't behave negligently, we can protect ourselves uh, uh, quite brilliantly in cyber. Uh, No time to panic. I mean, I'm taking that one right into 2022, okay? (laughs) So I'm pretty happy you just said that. All right, I mean, you're on CEO of Tenable. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks. And we will be right back with more news in a moment.
All right, we want to look at some of the market fallout around the world this morning. U.S. stocks looking to rebound after that sharp sell-off on Tuesday led by looming recession fears. Reminder that the Dow fell some 809 points on Tuesday. The S&P further retreated into bear market territory, posting a 52-week low. Look at that right now, though. We are up, especially that Nasdaq now, up better than 1%. It was a mixed performance, though, for Asian markets as lockdowns there, of course, continue. And more mass testing takes place in both Shanghai and Beijing. Analysts say lockdowns have brought the world's second largest economy near breaking point. Volatility is back on Wall Street. Rahel Solomon joins me now to discuss uh, how investors are weighing in on all this. I really watched the debacle yesterday afternoon with everyone trying to call a bottom. Maybe that's happened. We've got a slight bounce this morning, right? A slight bounce, Paula, so perhaps a sign that investors think that yesterday's sell-off was a bit overdone, but it is part of a wider theme that we've seen this month and this year. So what's rattling investors? Maybe the better question is, what's not? Of course, we have the war in Ukraine and the impacts to the energy markets. Uh, You have inflation, the fastest pace in 40 years. Last reading put it at about 8.5% year over year. Uh, Then you also have recession fears, which you just mentioned, Paula. The Fed saying that a 50 basis point rate hike is on the table for next month perhaps as compared to 25% or 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent that had been expected. Yesterday, we heard from Google parent Alphabet citing weaker ad spending, not a great sign. Also citing and warning investors that next quarter could also be potentially weak too. Paula, as an investor, you never want to hear a company start to warn or signal that next quarter may start to look weak as well. And it's not just Google and Alphabet. It's really all of the things the NASDAQ in general. Let's take a look at some of the FANG names. When you look at Facebook or Meta, for example, year to date, down about 46%, almost 50% just this year alone. Netflix, 67%. Alphabet, 17%. Amazon, 16%. So certainly just not a great year so far. Uh, some banknotes making the rounds this week. Deutsche Bank warning that uh, severe, der- severe downturn may be coming. Also, Morgan Stanley saying very few places to hide. Yeah, and certainly Deutsche Bank uh, using the R word recession got everyone's attention. Okay, we're done with the bad news. I've been really interested in so much guidance going forward from some saying that, look, consumers and businesses still spending, at least in the United States. Yeah, it seems like it might be the consumer to the rescue, right? Even yesterday, we heard from Visa saying despite inflation, which, as we just pointed out, is very high, despite supply chain issues, the consumer is still spending. They're not seeing an impact uh, in terms of consumer spend, especially because of travel. Folks want to get out and travel. We've certainly heard that from the airlines this earnings season. And MasterCard also saying similar comments last week when they reported. Microsoft also reporting yesterday, reporting a strong quarter uh, Revenues rose 18%. So could it be the consumer coming to the rescue, still spending? But Paula, maybe the question is, for how long? Yeah, and that's the issue right there. Visa you know, alluded to that pent-up demand in travel, and that's certainly one sector that has been strong. Rahel, thanks so much. Really appreciate it as we continue to watch the markets today. Now, meantime, those consumers are going to continue buying. A lot of them need those goods from China. China's president is calling for more spending on infrastructure to try and rescue its economy. Its financial growth has stalled again in recent weeks as a result of COVID lockdowns, supply chain issues as well. At least 27 cities are under restrictions and about 165 million people are affected. CNN's Selena Wang has been following it for us. 
In China, one million people are under strict lockdown after just one person tested positive for COVID-19. This is the reality in zero COVID China. Officials are especially concerned because this case was found in Sanhe, a city just 50 kilometers away from Beijing, and a lot of people commute between the two cities. This is as Beijing is trying to quash a nascent outbreak at the capital. They're trying to quash it early to avoid it from spiraling into the chaos and mess during the Shanghai lockdown. Beijing is already in a partial lockdown. Whether this turns into a full lockdown depends on how many positive COVID cases are found as a result of mass testing. Beijing has been testing 20 million residents in multiple rounds. So far, 114 cases have been reported since Friday. Beijing officials have been trying to reassure its residents that there are enough supplies of food and daily essentials. But still, people are concerned. There has been some panic buying in Beijing supermarkets. The residents, they've seen the horrors on Chinese social media of what Shanghai had to go through during their continued weeks-long lockdown. The lack of food, medical care and the unsanitary conditions at quarantine facilities. But while Shanghai and Beijing have gotten the most attention, millions of people across China are confined to their homes. Dozens of cities have rolled out some kind of lockdown restrictions. As most of the world is learning to live with COVID, China is still bringing entire metropolises to a standstill. And analysts say that these lockdowns are bringing China's economy, quote, near breaking point. Investment banks, they're slashing their forecasts for China's economic growth. But to try and fix the economy, China's leader Xi Jinping told officials that an all-out effort must be made to boost construction. He called for more projects in transportation, energy, cloud computing, and artificial intelligence. It is rare for Xi Jinping to set out these sorts of detailed economic plans. So these comments by China's leader indicates that Beijing is growing increasingly concerned by the country's economic outlook. And global investors are concerned too, as China's stock markets sink deeper into a bear market. Selena Wang, CNN, Kunming, China. And stay with us. We'll be back with much more news in a moment. The World Bank is warning that high food and energy prices could go on for years, and that is because of the war in Ukraine. Now, as global trade is impacted, Africa is finding itself a frontier market for food producers. And we want to take you there as part of today's Connecting Africa. Now, for decades, Egyptian entrepreneurs have exported produce, like those citrus fruits, right around the world. But in the last few years, they have expanded across key markets on their own continent. Eleni Giokos has more. In the fertile lands of Egypt's Nile Delta, citrus farming is a thousand-year-old activity. For Mohammed Gad, it's a long family tradition. Gad is the second-generation owner of Gadco Egypt, a large citrus producer known for its high-quality oranges. We start here from the collection of the fruits. We take this produce, we pack it, and then start shipping to the destination countries. His family started production in the 90s when he was just a young boy, 
And at a time when the economy was liberalized, transforming Egypt into a top exporter of citrus fruit. Many food companies started trading predominantly with Asia, Europe and North America. God's family business took a different road, betting big on the African market. We first started with South Africa. Later on, we introduced our produce to Kenya, Uganda, uh, Rwanda and Burundi. And then later on, we thought, why don't we export to the West as well? Today, God believes the new Africa Free Trade Area, or the AFCFTA, could transform the sector once again, intensifying trade across the continent. What we are looking for is trade between the whole continent. We want to send our produce from the north to the south, from the east to the west. With a reduction of tariffs on hundreds of food products, the FAO estimates intra-Africa trade of agriculture items could grow by 33% over the next decade. And that growth is luring more Egyptian entrepreneurs to look at the potential of the African markets. Ali Al-Gamil heads Cairo 3A, one of Egypt's largest food exporters, including citrus fruits. He says the opening of the African market could be a boon for his business. Africa is the last frontier, so uh, winning in Africa today will give our, our Egyptian brand a lot of equity in the next decades. As trade across Africa continues to grow, challenges still persist. The main challenge in Africa at the moment is the lack of infrastructure uh, makes it very difficult uh, for the daily trade. If, the, if there's a, a solution, I think we can have a better Africa. Back in the field, Gad is already seeing progress in bridging the infrastructure gap and unlocking the continent's potential. There is a new project which is the Cape Town Cairo Road. This is going to help the, the trade between uh, East African countries and the North and the South as well. A project helping him and other Egyptian entrepreneurs connect Africa with their fruits. Eleni Jakas, CNN. Finally on First Move, another day, another SpaceX mission. Four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Blasting off into space earlier today, the Falcon 9 rocket and crew Dragon spacecraft lifting off from Kennedy Space Center, headed for the International Space Station. Among the all-astronaut crew is Jessica Watkins, who becomes the first black woman to complete such a mission. They will study the long-term effects of being in space. And thanks for spending your day with us, your hour with us. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Lenny Giocos is next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.